in the uh, letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. He calls the church in Ephesus, as he does the church throughout human history, to understand the great dangers of living, living as fallen creatures in a fallen world with a holy God still seated upon his throne. Where Satan, sin, death, the dominions of darkness, and the threat of heaven and hell, that is all real and active. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. Listen closely, saints. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And then he says in verse 14, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Why? He says, Make the best use of your time, because the days are evil. He says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, because the days are evil. Now, we know, the Bible teaches that ever since the fall, ever since sin entered God's good creation, ever since Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, real dangers exist. Real physical dangers, real spiritual dangers, everlasting threats to the souls of men and women. And for all those throughout history who had fought the cause of Christ, who have pursued Christ, have experienced the very real cost of pursuing the living God. Marriages, family, persecution, and even death. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is not one of darkness, it's light. It's not one of defeat, it's one of victory. And so as we read through 1 Samuel 22 and we see the catastrophic movement of Saul upon God's people, we see the bloodshed and we see the horror, and it is a horrific scene. We know that there's great hope that's offered to us by God in Christ. Hope then, hope now, and hope forever in the midst of the very real darkness that still moves in this place. And so as we continue our journey with David this morning, God's anointed to be king, it is my hope that we will see three truths from this passage, three simple truths, and yet when applied to our lives would lead us to live Quite differently. Number one, the very real dangers of living in a fallen world. Now, for some of you, you'd say, can we go to point two? I know that. Number two, the real cost of following Jesus Christ. Some of you say, can we go to point three? I know that. Number three, the safekeeping, the real safekeeping God offers us in his son. Let's not skip to the end. Let's do some work here in 1 Samuel 22. Let's look first at the very real danger of living life in this fallen world. Last week we left off, and David, we pick up the storyline, David was hiding in Gath, remember? He had left, he had left uh, his people, he was hiding in Gath, running from Saul. Now Saul had convinced himself, at this point in time in the narrative, that David was after his throne. That David had actually conspired with his son Jonathan to somehow overthrow Saul and take the throne and reign as king. And he's talking to the people of Benjamin. And I want you to hear how delusional King Saul has become in our narrative. He's talking to the people in Benjamin, verse 8, and he says, No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. He's talking of Jonathan, of course. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. He has conjured up a lie, and now he's living in accordance with it. Jonathan and David, as we know, did make a covenant, but it had nothing to do with Saul, and it had nothing to do with overthrowing his kingdom. 
They had made a covenant of love one to another to care for each other and protect each other and their families for generations. But the truth and reason no longer guided King Saul. He had set his face against God and God had set his face against Saul and Saul used his power to exercise his own fury. He had become a real danger. Look at verse 6. It says, Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him. Saul had truly become a clear and present danger to all of Israel, to the people of Israel. And none of us would be surprised because we read chapter 8. And in chapter 8, when the people asked for a king, said, God, we want a king. We don't want it to be you. We want it to be someone else. God more than says, I'll give you a king, and these will be the consequences. And so the prophecy that God gave to the people in chapter 8 is being borne out here in chapter 22. Saul had rejected God. God had rejected Saul. Saul had become a God unto himself, and he was exercising power. He was isolated. He was angry. He was feeling sorry for himself. He says, no one tells me when David and Jesse, when David and Jonathan sit down, no one tells me they've conspired against me. No one said that because it wasn't true. Saul was about to reveal just how dangerous life in this fallen world can be. Now, there's a problem with teaching and preaching on the dangers of this world in the midst of a people that live so filled with God's common grace. This is a hard point to make in the Western world because we have a false perception of peace, not real peace, but a false perception of peace. So when I come to you in point one of 1 Samuel 22 and I say, listen, living in this world is a dangerous thing, many of you will say, yeah, I guess, because my life does not reflect that. I don't see the great dangers that I see existing here in the likes of King Saul. As sinful creatures living in a sin-filled world with a holy God still seated on his throne, this is still a most dangerous place, even if we don't see it, even if we perceive peace because of the ease of life that we enjoy in the West. Last week, actually two weeks ago now, my wife and I had the great pleasure of enjoying some time with a brother and sister one evening out in Willow Glen. Now, if you have spent time in Willow Glen lately, that's a charming little place. They got, you know, little restaurants and ice cream stores, and we went to Willow Street Pizza. We had a a scrumptious meal, and then we walked next door, and we had some ice cream, and it was glorious. It was a glorious evening, and we're sitting outside enjoying some ice cream, and I'm looking around, and there there were a lot of people there, and there were some children that were playing. There were many adults engaged in some animated dialogue, There was a florist walking around trying to sell flowers to would-be suitors, which I found fantastic. And all the while, I was thinking of Jeremiah 6.14. kept running through my head. Jeremiah 6.14. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. I had been studying Jeremiah that morning, and as I looked out upon this relative peace and wonderful night underneath it there's something tragically wrong and i'm not dismissing god's common grace or even how wonderful that night was but that isn't everything that's not complete truth when jeremiah prophesied this when he spoke god was about to use the babylonians to bring his wrath and judgment upon israel for their sin and their idolatry the priests and the prophets of that time with the exception of jeremiah they were silent 
They refused to speak of the truth regarding the very real danger of their sin against a holy God. They refused to call the people to repentance, to submission, to come back in line with the God that had led them out of Egypt and into the promised land. And that means, regardless of how good the ice cream tastes or how wonderful the flowers smell, there is an underlying danger. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Patrick Henry quoted Joshua, um, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 6.14, when trying to get the people of this country to realize that there was a great danger waiting them. Remember what Paul said. Let no one deceive you with empty words. The days are evil. You say, well, this is, this is a fantastic sermon, Pastor. We're really starting off on an upbeat note. I have no intention of that. I don't come in saying, let me try to make these people feel a particular way. This is what the passage is going to reveal, that this is a very dangerous place, the fallen world. We saw in 1 John chapter 2, several weeks ago, John said, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. Saul was most certainly an Antichrist. And many Antichrists have come since that period of time. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter 5, 8, that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Death and the grave stare every single man and woman square in the face. Sin and the consequences of hell continue to be a very real, clear, and present danger today in the midst of our peace. Sin hasn't changed. The consequences of sin haven't changed. The holiness of God hasn't changed. The sinfulness of man hasn't changed. The danger is real, even if we don't want to see it, even amongst all the common grace that abounds, and it truly abounds. But the great danger is we then become deceived. In the face of all these very real dangers, in our comfort and ease, with our ice cream in hand, we say, peace, peace, peace. We preach this false peace from the pulpit. Every time we diminish the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and the need to repent and put our faith in Christ, every single time. Every single time a pastor or a preacher or a teacher takes the word of God and they teach to good parenting techniques or wise financial skills and they don't magnify the glory of God and the sin of man and the need for Christ, we diminish the danger that is real and present every time. We preach this false peace at our workplace and in our schools by our silence. When we say nothing to those around us, those in our mission field who do not know the holiness of God or their own sin and their need for a Savior, we preach this false peace. We preach this false peace to our unsaved family members every time we gather and ignore the very fact that God is holy and they will be judged. We preach that false peace. We think there is peace because we don't see Saul sitting in our backyard under a tamarisk tree with a spear in his hand. And so we say, peace, peace. We are lulled to sleep. Many of us have been lulled to sleep by a culture of radical convenience. When I'm hungry, I don't have to go into my backyard and hunt an animal and skin it and cook it. I just go down the street to Safeway or Lucky's. When I'm thirsty, I don't have to go and dig a well or find a well and draw up water. I just, I just take a cup and I put it against my refrigerator and it has this wonderful little device that just it disperses filtered spring water when I'm thirsty. 
When I'm insecure, I don't need to run to God. I, I will lock my doors, I'll buy a gun, I'll take medications, or I'll go see a therapist. I mean, the culture of convenience diminishes the real danger, but it doesn't change it. It doesn't change it. In our temporal comfort and ease, all graces of God. I love my filtered water. But in these wonderful temporal comforts, the danger that exists still today, as it did in the time of Saul and throughout all of human history, it diminishes the danger. God is still holy. We are still fallen. Satan and the dominions of darkness are still active. The heart of man is still desperately wicked above all else. Now the world and grievously many messages proclaimed in churches throughout the country this day will tell us the opposite. They'll tell us that God is holy, but he will not judge. They'll tell us that man isn't perfect, but not deserving of hell. The false teachers will tell us that Satan isn't real and the heart of man is good, and therefore what? If that's true, if God's not holy and we're not all that bad and there's no such thing as Satan and hell's not real, then what? Then, then relax. Relax. Peace, peace. What are you worried about? It's all going to play itself out, right? It's heaven for everyone. As the culture presses us towards complacency and apathy and mediocrity and convenience, the dangers of sinful man living in a fallen world are diminished and we become vulnerable. My beloved, if you believe these lies, if you think the the likes of Saul, physical or spiritual, are no longer real, then you may suffer the same fate of Ahimelech, the priest, and his entire family when they came before this wicked king. Point number two, the real cost of following Jesus Christ. At this point in our narrative, Saul, he completely believes this lie that he's bought into. He believes that David and his son Jonathan have conspired to overthrow him. And so he exercises, he acts as a king based upon these lies. And the, the consequences are truly horrific. And I'm not using that word in a means other than its true sense. Look at verse 9. Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, and he gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, Philistine. There's always a Doeg, isn't there, in every group? There's always a dog standing right there gathering information so they can go and tell someone for their own benefit, their own economic benefit, their own personal gain. Always someone there. Years ago, when I was doing a college and career group here at Camden, it was made up mostly of, of students, some, many former students I had and some current students. Um, I had a particular student in my economics class. He wanted to come. He was professing Christian, so he came into our group and we welcomed him with great fervor and love, with open arms and Lo and behold, he was a doeg. His purpose was not genuine, but wicked. He came and he gathered just enough information to go back to my supervisor, my academic dean at De Anza College, and, and conjure up a lie with enough truth to get me fired. He was present, and his desire was to bring harm upon God's church and God's people. Now, if you remember last week, doeg was there at Nob. 
He was standing there as David was talking to Ahimelech, and he's hearing all this. And what does he do? He leaves Nob, and he goes directly into the presence of King Saul, waiting for this opportunity to provide this information, eager to see Saul exercise his wrath upon his own people, upon David, and upon the priests of God. Look at verses 11 and 12. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priest who were at Nob, and all the men came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. Ahimelech, his family, and all the priests of Nob enter into the presence of the king, and they come before King Saul with a clear conscience. They come before King Saul because they were petitioned and he was king, and they come before him. They say, Here, Ahimelech representing them says, Here I am, my lord. He had no idea. He had no idea how costly his dialogue and service to David was going to be. Look at verse 13. Saul said to Ahimelech, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have injured and inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? In other words... Ahimelech and the priest go before King Saul, and King Saul says, I'm accusing you of treason. Saul saw David as an enemy of the state. Ahimelech was aiding and abetting an enemy of the state. He gave him food, he gave him weapons, and he gave him guidance. And at this point in time, Ahimelech realizes that he has to count the costs. At this point in time, he realizes that David had lied to him. I mean, he's standing there before Saul, and Saul's making this accusation against him and the priest for siding with David, and he realizes now David was not sent by Saul. David did not come searching for these young men by the charge of the king. And and so at this moment, Ahimelech could have rightly blamed it on David, right? He could have said, wait a minute, wait a minute, king. David came to me and he said he, he was being sent by you on a secret mission, that he was charged to talk to these young men. And, and that's what he told me. He could, have, he could have lied himself. I mean, there's so much lying taking place here. Ahimelech could have lied. He said, you know what? Let's change that. I got a great story. And certainly knowing the rashness of this king, he knew that his answer, that the, his life and the life of his family was in the balance with how he answered this king. But I want you to notice something. It's extraordinary. Ahimelech here is, is, uh, presents a glorious uh, foreshadowing of Christ. He stands before Saul. He doesn't blame it on David. He doesn't lie. He doesn't come up with this story. Look at what he says in verse 14 and following. Ahimelech answered the king. He says, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? And who is the king's son-in-law and captain of over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time I have inquired of God for him? He says, no. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this much or little. Ahimelech says, I have no idea what's going on between you and David. But isn't David the faithful one? I mean, it's amazing. He, not only does he not blame David, he extols David. He lifts up David's virtues as a faithful servant of the king. He says, who is, who is so faithful as David? He's your son-in-law. He's your captain. 
He's honored in your own house. He didn't have to do this. Ahimelech did not have to side with David. He could have been very quiet, right? I have no idea what you're talking about, king. He could have cast some blame upon David. David lied, and that was wrong. But instead, he lifts David up as the faithful servant, as the anointed one of God. It was truthful, and it was candid, and it was costly. How costly was it for Ahimelech to speak the truth before this delusional king? Look at verses 16 and following. The king said in response to Ahimelech, you shall surely die. Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priest of the Lord because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. So he says, kill them all. Kill them all. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priest of the Lord. They knew better. Then the king said to Doeg, here comes Doeg again, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. What did it cost Ahimelech? It cost him his life. It cost him his family. It cost him every priest there. And we know in verse 19, look, it did not just stop in that moment. It says, Nob, the city of the priests, it was put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, Saul put to the sword. Now this, you talk about an amazing turn of events. The very thing that Saul had been commanded by God to do against the Amalekites, Israel's enemy, in chapter 15, killing every man, woman, child, which he did not do, he exercises against his own people. Man, woman, child, donkey, sheep, ox, infant, killed. Here stood the priests of God, 85 of them, with a clear conscience before their king, and they are slaughtered. Here they are wearing the the ephod, was the linen, it was a linen apron that represented the priesthood, and it was worn by those who were ordained as priests of God. And 85 stood there, It was such a grisly, bloody scene as the sword is taken out and they fall one by one by one. And the guard, Saul's guard stood there. They wouldn't do it. They they, they knew better. They were going to refuse the orders of the king because they knew these these were God's anointed. And yet they stood there though and they watched. I mean, the scene is so mind boggling. And then they go from that scene into Nob and they slaughter. They slaughter the city of the priests. It's a horrific image of a wayward king pouring out his venom on his own people, on God's people. What did it cost Abimelech? It cost him everything. What did it cost his family? Everything. What did it cost cost the priests of Nob? Everything. What did it cost the people of Nob to have the Ark of the Covenant in their city? It cost them everything. What does this have to do with you or me or our walk in Jesus Christ? Everything. Why? The Bible tells us the cost of following Jesus Christ is everything. In Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 27, Jesus takes 
this cost that's associated with following him, with submitting to God and our complete allegiance to the living God, just as we saw with Ahimelech and his family and the priests and all the city of Nob, the cost of following Christ is everything. And Jesus makes no bones about it. He doesn't sidestep this. Listen to what he says, Luke chapter 14, 25 and following. Jesus says, now great crowds accompanied him. So he's being followed by lots of people. And he turned and he said to them, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In other words, saints, nothing has changed Following God, submitting to Christ is the most costly endeavor that a man or woman will engage in in this life. God must be our greatest love. He must be our greatest allegiance. That means, simply put, your life, your comfort, your temporal security, your wants and desires must be subordinate to the life that God has called you to. It must be submitted to the life called and equipped you to live specifically. You have a cross to bear. You have a ministry to fulfill. Each and every one of us, not just pastors or, or, or deacons, or every single person has been equipped and given work to do by God. We so desperately want to convince ourselves that one, the fallen world is not that dangerous, and two, the cost of following Christ are really not that high, but the Bible tells us otherwise. It says this is a most dangerous place, and following Christ will cost you everything, even if it doesn't seem like it's cost you everything. Jesus continued in Luke 14, and he says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Now, my beloved, if you hear this and you say to yourself, the costs aren't that high for me. If you, if you evaluate your life in Christ and you say, it hasn't really cost me that much. I mean, a little inconvenience, you know, maybe a little heckle here and there when I tell someone that I'm a believer of Christ. But, but, but really, when I evaluate my life, it hasn't cost me that much. It's not all that different before I came to a saving grace. Might it be possible that we, you, I, are living in such a way as to minimize the cost? If we are not counting the cost, if we are not bearing the cost, if we don't experience them, might it be that we're, we're actually living and doing things to minimize the cost, to keep it low? That you're not striving to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That you're not growing in love and submission to his word. That you're not speaking and living in accordance to the truth like Ahimelech before Saul, knowing the consequences may be death. That you're not dying to self. That you're not daily picking up your cross and following Christ. I mean, if we're not doing these basic things the gospel calls us to do again and again, then might it be that we're not experiencing the costs because we're not truly pursuing Christ? Certainly with not, not with the fervor that we're called. Because of the ease of the culture, our cultural moment, it's different in different other places of the world, but right now, right here, isn't it possible to declare ourselves Christians 
and follow Christ in some nominal sense and not experience much persecution, therefore not have much cost. It's possible. I would argue, my beloved, if we were living more boldly in our faith, if we were aligning our personal holiness with what the Bible says, if we were using our time and our money and our energies and our talents to serve and bless others, if we, if we were faithfully sharing the gospel with the lost, that means our employers, our fellow employees, our students, our teachers, our next-door neighbors, our family members that we know do not know Christ, if we were faithfully sharing the gospel, wouldn't the cost be greater? I'm not telling you to go out and look for persecution. I'm not telling you to be unwise. But, but Ahimelech simply came before the king with a clear conscience, and he spoke the truth, and he lost his life, and he lost his family, and he lost an entire city because he faithfully submitted to God. Shouldn't we be able to look back on our lives and count the costs? Shouldn't we be able to say, you know, before I came to a saving grace and from this point to this hour, I should be able to look back and I should be able to say, you know what? I lost that job because of my faith in Christ. Or I didn't get that job because of my faith in Christ. That lifelong friend that I've known since, since kindergarten is no longer my friend because of my allegiance to Jesus Christ. Shouldn't I be able to say, you know what? These neighbors that I've tried to testify to are no longer as kind to me and as loving to me before they knew that I was a Christian. Wouldn't we be able to count the cost of, of those, those family members where the relationship is now strained because when you see them at Thanksgiving or Christmas or Easter, it's not all peace, peace, but you're, you're, you're compelled to share the gospel? that you can't remain silent because you love them and you don't want them to come up for a holy God and spend an eternity in hell and so you love them properly to the cross. And what does that do? It strains a relationship. Two of my three brothers, we don't talk much. Why? When I see them, it's, what do I talk about? I say, listen, what's going on with you? You profess Christ. How are things going? Are you in the church? What's going on? Where's your family? Where are your kids? It's strained. So now he, only, he doesn't call me anymore. I, but I get it. But shouldn't those be some of the costs associated? You're not out trying to break the relationship, but you're going to testify to Christ. You're going to love him to the cross. And if, in so doing, they'll be strained. Friendships will be strained. Family ties will be strained. And even, saints, even within the church, as we bring the word of God to bear upon one another's lives, as we take the word of God to minister to one another, that's going to break relationships. It will cost us to submit to God and to one another. So we should be able to look back and go, yeah, there have been real costs in following Christ. Real costs. Now, unfortunately, we have a teaching today in the church that's made its way in, at least in the West, where we exercise our faith based upon you know, uh, an undergraduate economics class in risk management, where, where we were taught, I was taught, where you, you're looking at risk management and you're looking at the cost and you're looking at the benefit and you're weighing it out. And we take that thinking and we apply it to our faithfulness in Christ. 
And so we say to ourselves, well, if I pursue Christ in this area, it's going to cost me this much. And we either obey or we don't obey based upon that cost. Rather than what? What does Jesus say? Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. I'll determine the cost. Pick up your cross and follow me. It doesn't matter. You can't use a risk management cost-benefit scale in your pursuit of Jesus Christ. If you do, then the cost will be minimum because if your flesh is like my flesh, I will do everything I can to reduce the cost to my life and to my family. I'll do everything I can. I will go before King Saul, not like Ahimelech. I will go and I'll blame David. I'd have blamed David in a nanosecond. I'd have ratted him out in a minute. And I said, anointed of God, you know, King, he lied. Or I certainly would have told a lie myself because that's what my flesh would do. When we pursue Christ with all our might and with all our life, we don't engage in a cost-benefit analysis. Jesus said again in Mark chapter 8, these are the words of the Lord, do not accuse me. He said, if anyone would come after me, he said, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Listen closely, verse 35 of Mark 8. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So glorious. And then he says in verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? That's a most reasonable question, even in a cost-benefit analysis. What does it gain What does it profit a man to gain the world and forfeit his soul? You know the answer. It profits a man nothing. It gains a man nothing. It is the ultimate loss. You try really hard to follow Christ but minimize the cost here on earth and you may lose everything. We can't engage in a cost-benefit, risk-management approach toward the Savior. This is God. He's called you and he, he wants your whole life. He wants every word and every thought. He wants every day and every moment in submission to him. He says, pick up your cross and follow me. I'll determine the cost. I'll determine the benefit. I'll determine your life. And that's what we hate. I mean, that's what we hate the most, right? How dare you? Who do you think you are, God? Yes. He does. Because he is. The cost of following Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in this fallen world will be high, regardless of your time or place in human history. You can be in the affluent, bathed in common grace, Western world in 2014, or you can be somewhere in the Middle East, in the Middle Ages, or we can go all the way back to the time of Christ. You pursue Christ in this fallen place, and there will be costs. God guarantees it. And just as Saul went after all those who sided with David, you'll be attacked as well. What I found in my own life is that I discount the costs and I exercise less faith when I take my eyes off Christ. The Bible says to fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. To fix your eyes on him. When I take my eyes off him, you know what I look at? I look at the spear in Saul's hand and I go, (gasps) when I take my eyes off Christ, I look at the spear and I think that's dangerous. I have to minimize the cost somehow. I can do whatever I can to protect myself. What's so amazing to me is the very one for whom you and I must suffer experiencing these costs, the very one 
who, because of our allegiance to him and our faith in him and our following him, will bring much suffering, is the one who says, come to me and I'll keep you safe. You want a weird story? This is one. He says, count the costs and then realize. This is Jesus. He says, count the costs and realize. If you have me, you have everything. Jesus says, count the costs and realize. If you have everything and you don't have me, you have nothing. He wants us to count the cost, and he wants us to realize that if we know him, if we're in him, if we've been saved by him, we have everything now and forever. He says, count the cost, and you'll realize that I am worth every penny. Our relationship with Jesus Christ is worth every cost, every penny, every suffering, every persecution that comes against us. The Apostle Paul got this. And I don't think it's said any more beautifully in all the sake of scripture than in Philippians 3. Listen to Paul. And Paul, Paul suffered, did he not? I mean, Paul paid. Paul says, indeed, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as what? I count them as rubbish, as garbage in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. I love that passage. He says, I'll count the costs, and it's all rubbish. It's worthless compared to the surpassing knowledge and glory of knowing Christ, Lord, my Savior, being in him. By God's grace, you've said, you've, I've shown you the dangers of living as sinful creatures in a sinful world with the holy God seated upon the throne. And by God's grace, I have shown you that there are great costs associated with following Jesus Christ. And by God's grace, you'd reflect upon that. And if there aren't great costs, you would evaluate your life in Christ. Go back to 1 John. So lastly, I want to show you the point that you waited for and wanted most when I first introduced the sermon, no doubt, is the real safekeeping we have in the Son. If the danger's real, and I believe scripture testifies that it is. And the costs of following Christ are high, and I believe the scriptures and life would testify that the costs are high. How are you to hear this and not become discouraged? I mean, how are you to hear this and not say to yourself what I would say to myself? Is I have no hope. I'm not a big risk taker. I'm not very strong and I'm not very wise. How am I going to make it through a dangerous world where the costs are high? If you are discouraged and thinking you have no hope, that is not what I'm saying, and that's certainly not what the Bible says. Jesus Christ in Matthew 11 said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Christ says, Come to me, those who are weak, those who are burdened, those who are heavy laden, those who are lost, those who are unwise. If you're a fool like me, Christ says, Come to me. What did those in our narrative do? What did they do? Not what did they say. What did they do when they realized, they, those in our narrative realized two things. This is a very dangerous place with Saul seated upon the throne. And they're going to look at Ahimelech and they're going to look at the family and they're going to look at the consequences upon, on, on Nob and they're going to say, the costs are high for following this Yahweh. So what did they do? They ran to David. 
they fled and they sought protection from the very one that their allegiance to was bringing about the suffering and the cost. We're told at the very beginning of this chapter that David left Gath and he fled the cave of Adullam. And, and he, it, this was built on a hilltop overlook, overlooking the, the Elah Valley, just south of Beth Shemesh. And we're told, look at verses 1 and 2 with me. We're told this, that, that when his brothers and his father's household heard that David was there in the cave, they went down to him. Now listen to this. You want to hear pure gospel in 1 Samuel 22? And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became commander over them and there were with him there about 400 men. In fear of Saul, they didn't say, oh, peace, peace, everything's fine. They realized there was great danger. And so his family fled to him, those who were in distress, those who were in debt, those who were in bitter soul. They all ran to David and they sought refuge under the one God had anointed to be their king. They fled to David, the one they were being persecuted for, aligning themselves with. They sought refuge in their future king, in their yet to be king. The chapter ends in a similar fashion. Look at verses 20 through 23. One of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. He's the only one that made it out of Nahab, the only one. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, look at verse 23, he says, Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. You see what God was doing? In the midst of the danger, in the midst of the wrath that Saul was pouring out, God is saving a remnant for himself. He's taking a handful of people and he's bringing them under the care, under the watch care, the covering, the safekeeping of David, his anointed to be king. This chapter begins and it ends with deliverance, a place of refuge, a safekeeping that God had provided in David. In other words, Saul's ruthless slaughter against the priests of Nob was not the last word. Saul was not going to have the last word in this storyline. God protected for himself a people who, those in distress, those in debt, those who were bitter in soul, he gathered them together and he brought them to David and he put them underneath David for their safekeeping. Those who were experiencing the cost of aligning themselves with David, fled to David. Those who realized the danger they were in because of the wickedness of this world in King Saul, fled to David. This is such an important teaching for those of us in Christ. Like Ahimelech stood before Saul, speaking the truth, Jesus Christ stood before the powers of this dangerous world, before the principalities of the air, before sin and death, and he spoke the truth as well. In John chapter 18, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, said to Jesus, So, you are a king. Listen to our Lord's answer. You say that I am a king? He says, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. 
everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus Christ, bearing truthful testimony, suffered the same consequences as Ahimelech. He was put to death, but he wasn't stabbed to death. He was nailed to a Roman cross. The, very, the same high priest that God sent to earth to intercede for fallen man, to come before fallen man and intercede for our sins, that we might have redemption in him and be saved and have, have the presence of God forever, in his speaking the truth, suffered a most horrific death. But again, this was not the last word. It wasn't the last word with Ahimelech, and it wasn't the last word with God's son. After dying, we know the narrative. It's a glorious narrative. After dying on the cross, he's put in the tomb, and he stays there for three days. And then on that day, on that third day, what does he do? He rises from the dead. He rises from the dead, and he offers. He offers to all of us that are in distress, all of us who are in debt, all of us who are bitter in soul. He says, come to me, Ye who are heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. I will give you a real peace, not a false peace, not a peace the world perpetuates. I'll give you a real peace that lasts now and into eternity. Jesus says to us what David said to Abiathar. Jesus says to us, he says, stay with me. He says, do not be afraid. With me you shall be in safe keeping. How can Jesus say this to us? How? Because in Christ you are truly safe. Jesus Christ can say this to you and he can say this to me and he can say that to all who repent and believe and follow him because his life, not yours, was sacrificed. His life was given up that yours might be spared. He paid the price that you and I rightly owed for our sins. He suffered the consequences of our rebellion and he offers to us instead life. He says, you don't have to stand before Saul. You don't have to be executed, you and your family, you and all the people of your city. He says, come to me and I'll keep you safe. I've died for your sins already. I've forgiven you if you come to me and rest in me. And then he offers us grace and peace and deliverance from this very real evil age. Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, grace to you and peace and peace, don't read quickly over the beginning of letters. Peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave him, Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from what? The present evil age. Those who fled to David did so when he only had 400 men on his side. They fled to their yet to be king. He wasn't seated on the throne yet. My beloved, we are called to put our faith and our trust in a king who has yet to establish his absolute eternal authority and reign over the heavens and the earth. He will come again in glory. The Bible teaches this. He will come again in glory and he will judge living in the dead and he will reign on earth. But right now, Christ is saying, come to me through faith. Put your trust in me in faith. God is saying to you this morning, run, don't walk. Run to the one who can keep you safe. Run to Christ. Will following Christ bring great cost in your life? Absolutely. 
Will following Christ enhance the, the danger that you're in? And it'll seem like it in many ways. But Christ is the answer. He's the answer to this evil age, and he's the answer to our insecurity. Why seek refuge in a crucified Christ? Why flee the dangers of this place to a king yet to be seated? I'll give you one reason, I'll close. This king counted the costs, and he chose you. This king counted the costs when he came, and he chose you. His leaving heaven and becoming a man, his being rejected by his own people, falsely accused, arrested, and brutally beaten, nailed to a cross, forsaken by his own father, bearing the just punishment of our sins, the sins that we rightly deserved. Why? Why did he do all this? You say, to the glory of God. Absolutely. And what did it produce? It produced a people for himself. Christ counted the costs, and they were horrific. But he said, it's worth it. Because if I do this, if I come to earth, if I live a sinless life, the life that you were supposed to live, and I die a sinner's death, the death that you were supposed to die, and I take your sins, and I, and I have my father punish me like you were supposed to, if I do that, then I get you. And Christ said, I will do that because I want you. I don't know of any more compelling reason to submit to the living God than to know that Jesus Christ counted the cost and he chose you. He said, I want that one. Only Christ has the power to overcome your sins and offer you a real peace in the midst of the danger. Only Jesus Christ and his righteousness has the power to overcome the debt that we've incurred against the holy God for our sins and offer us, impute to us, give to us his righteousness and his glory. Only Christ and an eternity with him, knowing him, loving him and being loved by him only Christ is worth the cost you will incur for living a life of radical faith. Only Christ. If you do not keep him center on your heart and mind, then you will count the cost and you will not walk in faith. But if you keep, if you keep our king, our savior, the love of your soul front and center before you, if you fix your eyes on him every moment of every day, then you know what you will do? You'll walk a life of radical faith. You will count the cost and you will say, he is worthy, he is worthy. Only Jesus Christ can say to us with absolute certainty, stay with me. Do not be afraid. With me you shall be in safekeeping. Only he can say that. Don't mislead yourself or God forbid others by perpetuating a false peace. Speak the truth to others in love and humility, but tell others of the very real dangers of living in this fallen world as sinful people with the holy God, no matter how good the ice cream tastes or how beautiful the flowers smell or how glorious a night in Willow Glen can be. Don't be fooled into thinking this is no longer a dangerous place. It is hard, isn't it? I mean, what a glorious day. We come in here and we're in an air-conditioned building. It's glorious, right? We live in a glorious place. Don't be fooled. It is still radically dangerous. I would say even more so because we're that much easier. It's much easier to be fooled. 
peace, peace, but there is no peace. When you find yourself suffering because of your faith, counting the very real costs because of your discipleship, run to Christ. Press yourself into the Savior. Seek His face. Desire to hear His voice. Go to his word. Commit to him in prayer. When the costs are overwhelming to you, just as we had a chance to sing, seek refuge in him. There's no other place. Wherever you go for that refuge, if you find any relief, it'll be fleeting. But if you go to Christ, you can find refuge and security in him both now and forever. Seek his face in prayer. Turn your ear to his voice. Come under his mighty hand, and the Bible says he will lift you up. I pray, my beloved, for myself and for us as a church and for the church throughout the world, that we will find our safekeeping in the one who has both the power and the desire to keep his sheep safe forever. And there's only one, and that's Jesus Christ. He has the power and the desire. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would forgive me and my brothers and sisters and all the faithful in the church throughout the world for fooling ourselves, thinking that this fallen world in which we live is no longer that dangerous. Forgive us, Father, for seeing the common grace that you pour out in all of our lives, and it is truly um, overwhelming to me. And taking that common grace as a veil that we might not see the very real dangers of continuing our sin and rebellion against you, a holy God. Father, give us eyes to see clearly those in our midst that do not know your Son. Give us words to speak the truth in love with great humility, the hope that is offered through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make us bold in our testimony as we call people everywhere to repent and believe and follow your Son. Silence us, Lord, when we preach peace, peace, where there is no peace. I pray that we would offer peace only through the cross and only through Christ, that we would not be perpetuators of a lie. I ask, Father, also that you would give us great wisdom so that we are suffering the persecution that comes with a radical faith, the costs that are involved with pursuing Jesus Christ and truly loving him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. When we're experiencing that, Lord, I pray that you give us the wisdom to run to Jesus, to press ourselves into the Savior, to find our safekeeping and our refuge and our strength to continue on in him and him alone. And I pray then, Lord, we would rest. As we work, as we serve, as we minister, we would rest in him. Knowing that if we are in his hands, in his arms, we cannot be lost. We cannot be forsaken. We cannot be taken away. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come can separate us from the love, your love, which is found in your son, Christ Jesus. Remind us of that, Lord, daily, I pray. Embolden your church to be a brilliant light in this dangerous, dark place. I pray, Lord, you would use us, weak, feeble men and women, 
to spread and proclaim your gospel far and wide, that you who are deserving of all glory and honor will be praised for who you are and the great work that your son did on the cross to save men. We ask these things in his holy and precious name. Amen.